this morning, please, to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, after uh, preaching for 52 years and hearing a, a lot of preaching and so forth, you, you learn a few things and uh, I've learned that there's some signs that you know you're in for a long sermon, you know, if if there's a, a case of bottled water sitting next to the pulpit, you're in for a long sermon. Or if you hear the pastor say to the sound man, you know, uh, put in a, a few extra CDs there to make sure you get all of the sermon, or naturally if the pastor brings a bag of cookies and sets them up here or you know you're really in trouble if he says we're going to take a a a brief intermission or if he brings his sermon notes in a file cabinet you know sometimes we preachers take our watch off and you know lay it up here if he puts a calendar up there you know you're in trouble or you know you're in for a long sermon if the pastor says don't worry you'll be out in time to watch the super bowl that doesn't start for six hours, or you're really in trouble if he says you don't need to watch the Super Bowl. And you might be in for a long sermon if the pastor says, I, I just finished drinking a 16-ounce espresso. It might have been 12 ounces, I don't know, but they had something new over in the kitchen this morning. I thought it was iced coffee, and uh, it was, uh, I guess, ice espresso they said but sure sounded good to me and so I I sampled it I started to not tell you all about it because I was going to keep that secret to myself but that'd be cruel all right I better get to it or (laughs) y'all are in trouble I, I I brought my cane so you know it you know you're in for a long sermon when I got to prop myself up Paul says in verse 1, Would to God ye would bear with me a a little in my folly, and indeed here, uh, bear with me. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus whom whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit which ye have not received, or another gospel which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. Now, look at verse number 13. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. Of all of the burdens that the Apostle Paul carried, and by the way, they were many, if you're familiar with his ministry, I think the heaviest burden on his heart was the thought of people being unsaved. 
It was so painful to Paul that he said that he would be willing, as it were, to, uh, to be cast off into hell and separated from Christ if that would mean that they would be saved. And, and the thing that troubled him is that so much, much false doctrine had entered into the churches. It was sweeping like a wildfire through the churches. And Paul is trying to, to deal with these issues in the various epistles that he wrote. And especially here at Corinth as he is writing to them. And he's trying to deal with these issues of the false teachers that have come in. Trying to undermine the scriptural teaching that... Uh, that they had heard from him. And I want you to notice verse 3, because this is our text this morning. He says, But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtility, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The simplicity that is in Christ. That means it's all about Christ, by Christ, for Christ. Salvation is not in a creed, it is in Christ. And that baffles the unbelievers. And Paul dealt with that in 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, where they're totally confused by it, they don't know what to make of it, you know, how that that we could possibly be saved by a man dying on the cross. It's a mystery to them. And it's a mystery because as Paul said to the church at Corinth, the God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded their minds to the gospel. And this is what he's dealing with here. I am so thankful that over the past few weeks we've had four people that have trusted Christ as their Savior. Uh, Ava Mills will be following the Lord in baptism this morning because she was saved here a few weeks ago. Uh, That thrills me because that's the most wonderful thing that could possibly happen to anyone. But at the same time that it thrills me, it troubles me because it makes me realize that everybody is not saved. It concerns me because they're not concerned. And it happens week after week after week. Those that by their own omission have never received Christ as their Savior. And they don't seem to be at all concerned about it. They're focused on the wrong things. They, you know, they want to experience something or they want to accomplish something. And so they make plans and preparation, put forth effort in order to make that happen. But even when they finally at long last reach their goal, they're not satisfied. Because there's nothing in this world that can satisfy a person that is unsaved. Absolutely nothing. I'd rather be a child of God than to be the most healthy, wealthy, popular, powerful person on this earth. And I say that because without salvation, one of these days, you will lose absolutely everything and then have to stand before a holy God to be judged and separated from him for all of eternity and that being the case it's crucial that every Christian not just the pastor but every Christian does everything possible to show others the way 
to salvation. That ought to be a part of our regular life. It ought to be a part of our mission. It is our mission that we bring others to Christ. And I realize that none of us would intentionally fail at this, would we? We pastors sometimes fail to deal with the simplicity of salvation because there's so many critical issues to deal with. You know, we've got the saints going through the fire and the great difficulties and you want to comfort them. We've got the new Christians that need to be instructed in the faith and built up and so forth. And you've got all of these issues and then you live in a nation that is literally falling apart before your very eyes and it's so difficult to not drag that into nearly every sermon and to think about where we are in America today. It just boggles your mind. And so in the midst of all of that, sometimes it's easy to forget about the basic fundamental truth concerning the simplicity of salvation. Originally, I wanted to do an expository message going through this chapter because there, there, there is just so many things that we need to take into consideration here. And I, the more I thought about it, the more I prayed about it, the more I come to the conclusion before I do that, it'd be a whole lot better if we just answer some questions. Because, you know, we live in a day where, you know, there are folks who say, well, one, one religion is just as good as another. What we ought to be saying is one religion is just as bad as the others. Because that's the way that it really is. And, and believe it or not, sometimes, and especially in this case, the most serious thing is actually the most simple thing. Religion has deceived billions of people. And the Bible speaks about simplicity that is in Christ. Now, there's a lot of hard things to understand in the Bible. Having studied the Bible more than half a century, there's still a lot of things I don't understand. I'll be the first to admit it. I have no idea. Somebody wants to know, you know, who are the two witnesses going to be during the tribulation period and all that. want to know about the mark of the beast and all that. A lot of mysteries, a lot of hard things to understand. But let me tell you, the plan of salvation is not one of them it is so simple a child can understand it so this morning in addressing this subject about the simplicity of salvation I want to ask and answer five questions that every person needs to know number one what are we saved from now, the very word salvation itself implies that there is some difficult or some dangerous, deadly condition from which we need to be rescued. Just, that's just the meaning of the word, however you use it. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word translated salvation simply was deliverance. You could use it in the physical sense, and it's used in that way whenever God delivered Egypt from, or, or Israel from Egypt. It could be delivered in that way. It could have to do with a physical deliverance in which God healed those that are sick. So it's deliverance of any kind. But we come to the New Testament and we find that word. Most often it refers to our spiritual salvation, our spiritual deliverance. And sadly, some people miss the point because to hear some preachers talk, you would think that salvation has to do with 
restoring relationships. And I say that because, you know, they tell everybody, you need to become a Christian so, you know, you have a better marriage. So you can hold your marriage together. Well, being a Christian will help you do that, but that has nothing to do with why you need to be saved. Others leave the impression that you need to be saved because of your need to recover from some addiction or to defeat depression or so you can live your best life now. Don't think I need to explain that one. But those are not the primary reasons for salvation. The greatest need why we need to be delivered is from the consequences of our sin. That's, that's what we're saved from, the consequences of our sin. And we've got to understand that. You don't become a Christian just so you can become a better person, but rather because you realize that you as a sinner must give an account of yourself before a holy God and you need deliverance. From the consequences of your sin, because the wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. Not only physical death, but spiritual death. That is eternal separation from God. But there's another question then, and that is, by whom are we saved? You know, it's one thing to talk about the fact that we need to be saved, but it's another question to... You know, ask, by whom are we saved? Well, that's the easiest question of all, really, because the Bible tells us clearly that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. You remember the angel said there in Luke chapter number 2, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. The Bible says there is salvation in no other name other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said there's only one mediator between God and man, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So He is the only one who can save us. There's no hope in the Pope. You're not, you're not listening. There's no hope in any Baptist preacher. There's no one or nothing that can possibly save you other than the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm glad God made a way, aren't you? It just didn't leave us in a pit of despair to say, you know, you're going to have to figure this out on your own. You got yourself, you know, in this mess. Now, you've got to get yourself out of what well, we never could. Because all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, the Bible says. We have nothing that we could present to God that would suffice to take away our sin debt. So if salvation then is brought about by Christ. But there's another basic question, and that's, what are we saved to? What are we saved to? We know what we're saved from. We're saved from the consequences of our sin. We, we know who we are saved by. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. But we're also saved to something. You know, we often talk about Christ being the Redeemer. A lot of folks, you know, use that word without having any understanding of what it means whatsoever. To redeem something means to purchase something. You, you, you know, you go to the slave market back in ancient times and you, you purchase someone. Someone that was a slave. You purchase them. You paid the price of redemption. 
and, and set them free. And that's what Christ did. But in the process of that, there's another word, reconciliation, that tells us that we were redeemed and because of that we are reconciled to God. That is, we are brought into a state of oneness with God. Whereas before we were considered the enemies of God, now we are the children of God. And so we are saved to that relationship with God and that brings Numerous blessings. We're saved from wrath, but we're saved to acceptance. We're saved from condemnation, but to forgiveness. We're saved from bondage, but to freedom. We're saved from death, but to life. We're saved from hell, but to heaven. Isn't it a wonderful thought to know that that even when we were at one time the enemies of God, that now we become His children. And as a result of that, we're described as being joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're saved to. Becoming a joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you look at all of those three questions and And it's easy to see that the most important thing in all of the world then is salvation. Nothing could be more serious than that. And yet at the same time we see the simplicity of it. But there remains the question, how do we receive salvation? I don't know of any better way to answer that other than like Paul answered it whenever the Philippian jailer said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul responded, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Is there anyone here that doesn't understand that? Every little child here understands that. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Nearly every Every church member here could quote Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 8 where it says, For by grace are you saved through faith. That's pretty easy to understand, right? It's by grace, but it's through faith. That is the channel. Somebody says, well, that's just too easy. There's got to be more to it than that. Well, it's easy because God made it easy. He did the tough work. He's the one that died. He's the one that, that paid the price for our sins. So why shouldn't or why... Why wouldn't God make salvation easy? Think about that. Well, because the Bible says He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And whenever you consider the greatness of God, and keep in mind that God is the great I Am, that simply means He is self-sufficient. That means He doesn't need anything else, anyone else. He is God. The self-sufficient God And yet, He wants to have a relationship with you and I and devised a means whereby that could happen. Way back in the eternal council halls of God somewhere, way back yonder, God, as only God could do, not only foresaw the future, but God devised a plan whereas He would allow us to have our freedom that is our own self-will. 
and knowing that we would choose to disobey Him. A lot of people think, you know, there when Adam and Eve, when they disobeyed God, that all of a sudden it was some big surprise to God. And, you know, He's sitting there on a cloud scratching His head thinking, well, what do I do now? They really messed this up. No, God knew that was going to happen. And God allowed it to happen. You say, well, why would God, why would God, knowing that man was going to sin, why would God allow that to happen? Well, I'm not God. You'll have to ask Him. But I know one thing. You and I would never know anything about the grace of God were it not for the fact that God allowed man to choose to do wrong as well as to do right. It's the consciousness of our sin and the reality of His forgiveness that makes us all of a sudden awaken as to the greatness of God's grace. You think about the simplicity of salvation. Think about the comparisons that you find in the Bible, for example. A lot of different ways to describe salvation. You'll remember to the woman at the well, the Lord there spoke about being the, the water of life. In other words, salvation is like taking a drink of water. He's the water of life. And He said, if you drink this water, you'll never thirst again. Salvation is like eating bread. I've never had any problem with eating bread. Have you? I, boy, I love it. I, give me some meat and taters and bread, and I don't need anything else to eat. I mean, that's just uh, that's simple. You don't have to sit down, you know, with a little child and say, no, this is how you eat bread. You just do it. And then salvation makes, an, uh, uh, the Bible makes another comparison to salvation. It's like passing through a door. And that's not any problem. It's like accepting an invitation. It's like turning toward home. I think about the prodigal son. And the prodigal son, by the way, is a picture of all unsaved humanity. It's a picture of all of us in our natural state. So many people confuse that and they think about, you know, it being a backslidden Christian. That has nothing to do with Christians that are out of the will of God. It has everything to do with sinners that have never been in the will of God. It's a picture of our lost estate. Of the fact that man decided... To try to live without God. And that's what the prodigal did. He didn't want to be under the confines of his father's authority. And so one day he says, just give me what's mine. And, and he went into a far country. And every sinner lives in a far country. I don't know how many miles he was away from home. It doesn't make any difference. You could be in that far country and sitting right there in your seat. But you're in a far country away from God. And finally, finally, at long last, out of desperation, not finding satisfaction anywhere else, and having nobody that could help him, the Bible says, and he came to himself. Sin is spiritual insanity. He came to himself, and when he came to himself... He came home to the Father. That's what salvation is like. It's like going home. 
I remember when I was a young boy and I decided I was going to run away from home. Something happened. I didn't like what happened. I packed my bags and I, and it was late in the evening already. And so I decided I'm, I'm going to leave and, uh, I've got my little knapsack or whatever I had. And I went up, we had a sort of an alley that ran behind the house. And, and so I went up there and down the alley a little bit. And I thought, well, you know, it's getting late. I'm going to just sit down here and rest and I'll get up and go in the morning or something. And, but about supper time, <laughs> mom didn't come looking for me. About supper time, I, I still think of it today. And I was, just, I was leaning up against that, that fence sitting there and all of a sudden I could smell we we lived the windows open in those days you know and I, I, could, I could smell mama cooking supper and after a while I could only take that so long and I decided hey I'd be better off to go back home and I went home that's the way salvation is for the sinner it, it's a it's like going home Paul says it's like making a deposit he said I know in whom I believe Do you? He didn't say, I know what I believe. You ought to know what you believe. But he said, I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Boy, it's really easy to make a deposit, isn't it? I mean, if you've got, you know, if you've got something to deposit and you go make your deposit and there it is. Making deposits a lot easier than working, isn't it? When somebody, you know, says, well, I'll, I'll give you $100, but, you know, you have to dig a ditch a half a mile long or something. There's a lot of work involved in that. But if somebody says, I'll give you $100, but all you got to do is just go deposit it, well, that's easy. Just make the deposit. And then the Bible likens it unto looking. Now, I said the other day that salvation... Is easier than working. It's easier than than running. It's easier than walking. It's even easier than breathing. But boy, when you stop and says, "Look, look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be ye saved." Just look. And that's the, that's the illustration Jesus used in the conversation with Nicodemus. And he referred back to that time there when the curse was upon the children of Israel. And, and he instructed Moses, make a brazen serpent and all the people have to do. They don't have to climb the pole. They don't have to do anything else. Just look, look. And that's all it takes for a person to become a child of God. It's just a look of faith. But all of that raises another question. And that is, what are we saved for? This is something that most people have really never thought about. I've been preaching more than 52 years, and I have yet to hear a sermon on what we're saved for. I've... Maybe I did and I forgot it. I don't know. But I don't remember ever hearing anybody preach about what we're saved for. Think about it. Why would God even be concerned with us? As I said, whenever we think about Him being the all-sufficient great I Am who needs nobody or nothing, He's complete in and of Himself. Why, Why would God be concerned about any of us? 
He doesn't need us. So why would God save us? Well, somebody says, well, He saves us so we can be forgiven. Or somebody else says, He saves us so we can go to heaven. But none of those answers gets to the heart of the matter because those are some of the results of being saved. They're not the reason for us being saved. Salvation, please don't forget this. Salvation is not only of the Lord, by the Lord, it's for the Lord. Somebody says, well, the reason He saves us is because, because He loves us. That's, that's it. No, it's not. We couldn't be saved without His love, but God's love is not the reason for which we are saved. So how do you know that? Because I know that God so loved the world. God, listen, you can't do anything to stop God from loving you. God loves the most vile, filthy sinner on the face of the earth. God loves them, but God doesn't save them. So that's not the reason for which we're saved. But surely there must be a reason. God just wouldn't arbitrarily say, well, you know, I've just decided I'm going to save some and I'm not going to save the others. God wouldn't do that. In order to understand it, we have to realize what God's eternal purpose is. Whenever you go home, if you read Ephesians chapter 1, and you look at verse number 6, and then you look at verse number 12, and then you look at verse number 14, you'll see three times there, as Paul speaks about the matter of salvation, and the Father's part of it, and the Son's part of it, and the Holy Spirit's part of it, In each instance, he says it's unto the praise of His glory. That's what it is. That's that's the purpose for which every person is saved. In in fact, whenever you go back to the Old Testament, you'll, you'll say that's the purpose of all creation. It says He created all of these things for His glory. The Bible tells us that He saves us for His glory. He created us for His glory. You see, salvation displays the grace of God, as I mentioned a while ago. God allowed man to sin because we'd never know anything about the love, the grace of God, were it not for the fact that God gave us a free will. Look. Love requires you to make a choice, a decision. And whenever a person is saved, it is a display of God's grace. And that results in God being glorified. That's why Paul goes on there in Ephesians chapter 2. After saying, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, what? lest any man should boast. Then we'd have something to brag about. We could go skipping down Hallelujah Avenue, you know, bragging about what we did to get there. But it won't be that way. 
it'll be all to the praise of His glory in that final day. No reason whatsoever except for the fact that through this, God is glorified. Now maybe somebody's thinking, but that sounds like God has a big ego and all He's concerned about is satisfying Himself. That He just designed everything and did everything so He would be glorified. Why would God do that? Because God knows something that most people don't know, and that is that we find our great satisfaction only in and through Him. We are pleased only as we please Him. And we could never find eternal satisfaction apart from the fact that we made it our life mission to bring glory to God. And that's why Paul says to this same church in his first letter, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever things you do, do all, he said, to the glory of God. You see, the moment that you are saved and you realize what you're saved for, that sets the tone for the rest of your life. That we exist and we remain upon this earth for the glory of God. Let Him be glorified in everything that's said and done. I'm going to be honest. When I thought about the message this morning, and I can't help it, but I, 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 I was concerned about who would be here and who wouldn't be here. And I'm concerned because I know that there are those that have never received Christ as their Savior. And I got to tell you, I was so hoping and praying that, oh Lord, let them, let them be here today. And then sometimes there are folks that, that are sitting right there before me. And I know that they've never made a profession of faith. And there are others that have made a profession of faith that are a thousand miles away from God. That don't even understand that if they were really saved, they would not be living in the depths of their sin. And I keep praying, dear God, help them to wake up and to see their spiritual condition. You know, sometimes people get a little upset because the invitation might go a little long or the sermon a little long. Let me tell you, sometimes you, as a pastor, you feel like saying, ushers, lock all the doors. Post a guard at these other doors. Nobody's, nobody's going out. And you just feel like, if, it, if I have to stay here all the rest of this day, hammering away over and over and over again... I'm not going to let you leave here until I convince you of your need to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. Now, I know I can't do that because I can't force somebody to believe. But I say that because there are so many people that have, have never, they've never even tried to investigate, as it were, the most important thing in, in life. They, they've already just made up their mind what they're going to believe. They've never even read what the Bible says. 
Somebody says, well, oh, I, I'm, you know, the Bible's just another book. I'm not even sure it's true. Yeah, of course you're not because you've never investigated it. You say, well, how can I know whether it's true or not? Read it! Amen. Just get in it. And let me tell you, as you read it, somebody says, boy, I'd, I'd like to hear God speak. Well, read the Bible. Because God's speaking through the Word of God. I don't need to defend this book. The Bible defends itself. It speaks for itself. And we're talking about the most important thing in all of the world, whether you go to heaven or hell. Don't look, don't you dare just say, well, I'll wait until another day or some other time. Because there may never be another opportunity for you to be saved. If you're here this morning and probably most of us can think of somebody that we know that's not saved, I hope when you get home you'll tell them, I wish you would really, and I mean this, listen to me. I, 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 would you do me a favor? Would you, would you go to the website and watch the, the morning service, listen to the message? Some way or another, with God's help, we've got to do everything in our power to get through to these people that they're going to a devil's hell unless they've been born again. That ought to be a concern to every child of God. Don't walk away with a spirit of indifference. And if you're here and you've never been saved, please, please don't just dismiss this so lightly. Consider what I say. Let God speak to your heart. And the Holy Spirit do His work and bring you to a saving knowledge of Christ. While we stand, our Father, we're so thankful that we can call you our Father. Lord, it would be one thing to, to be able to say and to refer to you as our great Creator. That would be wonderful or even to refer to you as, as the judge that, to which we are accountable. But Lord, to be able to say that you're our Father, to know that we have a personal, permanent relationship with you. What a great thrill and joy it is to know that heaven is our home, that Jesus is our Savior, and you promise to never leave us nor forsake us. And I pray this morning that you'll save that soul that's nearest hell, that you'll glorify yourself by saving them here today. And Lord, for those that have drifted away or those of us that have become distracted to the point that we're not even making an effort to tell others of Christ, God help us to repent this morning and to take advantage of every opportunity to try to bring others to a saving knowledge of Christ. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. No.